You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here it goes. I see you've brought out the wheel of randomness. Yes. I often bring it to dinner parties when I want to uh, expound on a subject but don't know what. But here, we'll just use it in this episode of Big Picture Science. So we'll just pick some random science topics. Yes and no. Look, science is often relegated to the lab, to a confined sphere of influence. You've got your scientists, and then you've got the rest of your life. But in truth, science, the scientific method, they permeate all aspects of our lives. There are all sorts of useful science alliances. In fact, I think science pairs well with almost anything, kind of like mango chutney in that regard. Well, we'll put that to the test in a moment. But first, I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. And let's begin with the science, the basics. And you can't get more basic than particle physics. We're all interested in particle physics because what you can't see makes up you and the world and the universe. The problem is we don't know what a lot of these tiny particles are. Physicist Bill Foster has tackled that problem while working at the Fermilab Particle Accelerator in Illinois. By smashing some particles together at very high speeds, we might create new and previously unobserved particles, such as the top quark which Bill discovered with a Tevatron-Proton-Antiproton collider. And for 25 years, Fermilab owned what was called the Energy Frontier. We operated the highest energy particle accelerator in the world. And it was called the Tevatron because it collided particles at a center of mass energy above 1 TeV, um, which is 1 followed by many zeros. And it was, you know, by far the highest energy accelerator in the world. And according to E equals mc squared, if you have a lot of energy, you can make a high mass particle. And so we're able to discover, actually, the world's heaviest known form of matter, the top quark. The top quark. Yes. So it sounds like there's a hierarchy of quarks. Well, these are the building blocks of matter. And so you start with the things that ordinary materials made out of, up and down quarks, are put together to make protons and neutrons. Then those are put together to make nuclei, which are put together to make atoms, and put together to make molecules and, and cells and people, and everything that we see. So it's not just answering the questions of what is everything made of, but also where are we from? What are our origins? Because that's another question that you, you can answer theoretically if you know more about the building blocks of the universe. Yes, and early in the Big Bang, you created these particles. Um, the top quarks have not been produced in abundance since the very early moments of the Big Bang. And so now we've been able to recreate them in a laboratory setting was just revolutionary in terms of understanding of what the Big Bang could have been like. 
subatomic particles and the Big Bang. Well, that's a great way to whet our appetite for science. But let's now spin the wheel of randomness. And see what the science pairs with. And we'll watch it go past the categories of science teachers and of comedy, both of which pair very nicely with science, I might add, to land on politician, science and politics. Hmm. Well, that doesn't usually pair well these days, at least not with all the infighting on Capitol Hill over what a fact is, as this politician knows all too well. This is Bill Foster, and what do you want, my identification? What is your what title am I? these I am, days? Well, I, I'm the formerly honorable Bill Foster, the former um, representative of the Illinois 14th Congressional District, and now an active candidate for the newly reconstituted Illinois Lab. Yes, Bill Foster left Fermilab. He was elected to the U.S. Congress as a representative from Illinois, voted out in 2008, and is running again for the 11th District. And he hopes to launch Ben Franklin's list and get more scientists into Congress. It's true. You don't see many particle physicists in there. I'm going to put this in front of you, and I'm going to ask you a question and ask you to explain this. This being the equation and title of his doctoral dissertation. An experimental limit on proton decay. And I just put it in front of you, an equation. Can you read that equation to me? That's proton decaying to positron and pi zero. You know, proton decay, we're pretty sure it's just your average water cooler talk on Capitol Hill. The fact is that all the scientists that serve in Congress that could chat about proton decay would fit inside a water cooler. At the time I served, I served for three years until last fall's election, and during that time, I represented 33% of the strategic reserve of physicists in Congress. Now, there were a handful of other. There's a mathematician. Um, there are some number of MDs. Uh, there's some number of people with economics undergraduates, and then you start getting into gray areas of whether an economist is really a scientist and so on. Okay, so um, if we have the umbrella of scientists, you're telling me everyone who qualifies as a scientist in in um, Congress. Yeah, in a, in okay. a, if you take a very generous definition of what you consider a scientist or an engineer, it's on the order of 4% of, of the U.S. Congress and actually of most state houses as well. Now, I, I wonder if this matters because when you're serving Congress, when you're a politician, you're, you're a politician and what's on your plate have to do with the, the issues of various districts and so forth. Does it matter if you are a scientist or not or if you have a scientific background? Um, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. There are issues like, oh, in the medical care debate about, you know, what we owe in terms of a guaranteed level of care to elderly people in this country. That's not a scientific debate. You know, that really comes from your your moral and spiritual principles. But there are often discussions, for example, energy policy, where there are technical facts that are key to understanding the debate. And when those are misunderstood or, or simply people aren't aware of them, bad policy can result. I remember overhearing a, a conversation in the cloakroom from a member of my party, which, who shall remain nameless, where the comment was made that we should put more windmills into our energy policy because windmills poll so well. They poll so well. Correct. So the idea is the reason why this person wanted more windmills is that people like windmills, but it wasn't because there was any deep understanding or thought put into an energy policy. Right. You know, as a scientist, what I'd say, okay, let's look at all the different ways that we know of producing carbon-free power and and then line them up according to which are, have the lowest cost per kilowatt hour when you've included all the capital cost, operating costs, and so on. 
And that is the rational engineering and scientific way to attack the problem. And it's pretty far from a poll-driven approach. Now, is this typical of the kind of science conversations that went on on Capitol Hill? I mean, there's so many science issues. Energy policy is one of them. Climate change is another. Nanotechnology and so forth. How would you rate the level of, of discussion? And, and was it informed? There's a huge scanner. Many members of Congress, if I had to name a typical one, you can think of as a really smart country lawyer. And so that they, you can have very intelligent discussions with them once you've filled them in on the background information they need to know. Um, there are some that, although their training was, you know, for example, as a lawyer, that if they are on technical committees, they've taken the time to educate themselves, at least at a qualitative level. So it sounds like there's a certain kind of a way that scientists think that is really useful when you're debating issues in Congress. But you've actually gone further than that, and, and some of your colleagues have a well, as well in drawing up something called Ben Franklin's List. And, and what is Ben Franklin's List? Um, this was an effort that I, that I worked on for several months uh, with my collaborator, Vern Ehlers, who was the other one, one-third of the Strategic Reserve of Physicists. Um, he was a Republican who retired at the end of last election. So when we talk about physicists, a handful, I mean, it wasn't that many. No, three. Okay, th right. three. three. Okay, so three physicists. Putting, yes, you have to put a number to it. Okay. Right. Yeah. The the remaining um, physicist serving right now is Rush Holt, who represents the area near Princeton. Okay. And so, so the the idea behind this was something very similar to Emily's List, which is a very famous organization that's dedicated toward getting basically women, more women, um, with certain political persuasions into into the U.S. Congress. And over the course of the 20 years since it was founded, it has put about 80 women into Congress. So it's been very successful. And about roughly 40 serve today as a result of being promoted and endorsed by that organization. So that's what success looks like. And so that the idea would be this would be Emily's List for Scientists and Engineers. And this it's called Ben Franklin's List. Ben, that was the working name for it. Mm -hmm. I think we reserved the web domain. And, and we did a lot of, of research into the feasibility of it. It eventually, you know, I personally decided to um, throw my hat back into the ring and return to being an active candidate, and that was sort of the end of the effort. But I'm still looking for someone to pick up the torch and carry it. So the idea is, I mean, to put it plainly, that you want to see more scientists in Congress serving. Right. Yeah, if you look at other countries, the situation is very different. One of the plots that I made when I was thinking about this whole thing was if you look at, at for example, China, the 25 members of the Politburo, there is one lawyer um, and the rest are all scientists or economists, scientists, engineers, and economists. And that is the way China is being run. If you look at the European Commission, then it is roughly one-third lawyers, one-third technical people, and one-third everything else. But why do we need scientists if, if people can be just apprised of various situations, they can think logically, and, and they can still make sound decisions? Why do you have to have someone who is specifically a scientist? It's not an absolute requirement, but you need to have the scientific way of thinking. The, the political calculation is very often, what can I get away with saying that will help me in the next election, which is very different than the scientific point of view. If you which, just, is, which is what? What is the scientific is, point of view? Which is to, to itemize all the evidence that you have, um, perform logical conclusions on the basis of that evidence. Some of them will be probabilistic and some of them will be just strict logical deductions and then present a conclusion. Okay. So, so you want to put more scientists on, on Capitol Hill. Why do you think there aren't more scientists running for various offices? Well, there are various very high 
hurdles that you have to jump over. You know, one of the things is that you have to come to terms with completely retraining your brain. The way you give a scientific talk is to present all of the relevant evidence, your logical deductions, and the conclusion. A political speech, you give the one-sentence soundbite. And so you have to understand that. Um, you also have to understand that in, in my case, or the case of any congressman, you represent about 750,000 people. You're very lucky in your campaign if they hear what you're saying even 15 seconds. And so in those 15 seconds, the person had better hear you say your fundamental message. You know, in, in my case, I'm Bill Foster. I'm a scientist and a businessman. I bring the kind of change we need to Washington, D.C. And so you say that fundamental message again and again until it makes you want to vomit. <laughs> and I don't know a lot of scientists that can boil down their message to 15 seconds, and I don't know that we'd want them to, really. But ignoring the reality of political debate and the way it is in the United States today is a recipe for failure. And so you have to come to terms with, you know, someone famous once said that you go to war with the army you have, and there are all sorts of things broken and wrong about the way we do politics. But the argument that, well, therefore, you shouldn't even try to, to do anything to make things better is not one I accept. Well, Bill, as we said before, you got into politics. You were a particle physicist at Fermilab. And to come back to your work there, you worked with the Tevatron, the particle accelerator there, colliding tiny particles, protons. The Tevatron has retired. So what happens to Fermilab now? Yeah, well, this was a, a sad moment for me. You know, I was in the control room um, 25 years ago when the first proton-antiproton collisions happened in the middle of the night and, you know, watched on the screen as, as we said, wow, we really have this. And I was there 25 years later when it shut down. And just to be clear, so you saw an antiproton and a proton collide, which, which meant? Oh, which means that you had enough energy and you had more energy in one tiny area of space and time than it happened before the Big Bang. And so this gives wow. you the opportunity to produce particles that have not been seen since the Big Bang, particles like the top quark that we eventually discovered. Well, with the Tevatron shut down, the focus turns to Geneva and the Large Hadron Collider and the hunt for an elusive particle called the Higgs boson. Do you think that physicists will find this particle? And if so, what does it mean for our understanding of the universe? Yeah, well, I think it's a, um, it's a crucial missing piece of the puzzle. You know, it's one of these things that's been predicted in various forms, you know, for a generation. All the time I was in particle physics, this was, you know, one of the many holy grails. For most of the time I was in particle physics, the top quark was the holy grail. And then we said, okay, what's next? And you look, and the next on the list is the Higgs. If you had to put it in political terms, you know, your, your 15-second soundbite and why it's important to discover the Higgs boson, what would that be? 15 seconds. Hmm. I think that's what you said. You can have a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, 15-second soundbite. <laughs> well, all right, try this. Um, every society spends a certain fraction of its time fighting wars, a certain fraction of its time and resources being successful in business, and a certain fraction of its time trying to understand the universe around it. And when you um, talk about that fraction, everyone has an opinion for what it should be. But the end of the rainbow for the reductionist approach of saying, here is an item, take it apart, what's inside it, and then take those pieces apart, what's inside them. You go and go and go down the chain, and the end of the chain, as we currently understand it, is the Higgs particle. And the fact that we're able to do that, if we walk away from that challenge, you know, as a world, then I think we've, we've made a mistake. So maybe that can't be said in 15 seconds, since no. that was more like 45, but maybe that's what it takes in science. 
That's right. I'm not quite good enough politician to distill everything down to an oversimplified 15 seconds. I don't think we want that. Bill Foster, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Molly. Bill Foster is a particle physicist, formerly of Fermilab, a former U.S. congressman, and now a candidate in Illinois for the 11th Congressional District seat. Here's a 15-second soundbite of what's coming up. Our nation's science scores are low, but cool it. There's some unexpected help in raising those numbers. And it comes in orange with fuzz. The Muppets and Science. It's Sciences Alliances on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. You don't need Google Maps to tell you how to get to Sesame Street. But googly eyes might help. For 40 years, the children's show has been found on public broadcasting stations, educating and entertaining millions of children with the help of brightly colored, fuzzy Muppets. Sesame Street has taught children how to count. Now the educational goal has gotten a bit more ambitious to address the crisis in STEM education. That's STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Among 15-year-olds, the United States is currently 29th in science among 65 industrialized nations behind Singapore, Finland, and Estonia. So the producers of Sesame Street thought if they could introduce children to concepts of math and science early enough, it might... Excuse me, I'm here to help. Uh, Who are you? I'm Ghazi, here to audition for show. What did you give his ID at the front desk? Nice to meet you, Ghazi, but there are no auditions for big picture science. But I want to help. I like math. I like science. Do you have cupcakes? No cupcakes, but you can finish this introduction if you want, Ghazi. Okay, Sesame Street like me. It likes science, too, and use smart Muppets to help teach kids about gravity, speed, how to move and measure things. It's all science. Nice woman Carolyn Parente is executive producer of Sesame Street, and she likes to include experiments. And in fact, a whole bunch of our shows have experiments that run throughout the hour-long program. And they're kid-friendly experiments, things like, you know, having a bunch of balls and finding out which ball bounces the highest and trying to figure out why, paper airplanes that fly, which one flies the farthest, and getting into the engineering and the planning stages of how to make something, a, a rocket or an airplane that goes a farther distance than the other. So what we really wanted to focus on was experiments that kids, our viewers, could replicate at home in their own playgrounds or their own their own homes so they could get involved. And you actually use the word experiment in some of the episodes. The one I'm thinking of right now is the one with uh, comedian Craig Ferguson. He joins Elmo. Hi, I'm Craig. Oh, and Elmo's Elmo. 
And we're here today to tell you about the word experiment. To explore this idea of experiment and how many chickens can lift him up. What, what are some of the concepts that are being explored there? In this particular piece, it's, uh, you know, one signature part of the Sesame Street uh, style is humor. <laughs> so we teach with humor, and it's a wonderful way to, I mean, a, an experiment can be, it's not just lab coats and beakers and chemicals. You can experiment with anything, and in this case, Elmo and Craig Ferguson are going to experiment to see how many chickens it takes to lift up Craig Ferguson, carry him off camera. And so it's a perfect example that any kind of situation can turn into experiment. You just need to ask a question. And how many chickens does it take to, to carry Craig oh, Ferguson well, off? Oh, you're just going to have to tune in and watch. Oh, I, I can't believe it. These chickens just lifted me. Yeah. Oh, so it takes two regular chickens and one gigantic chicken to lift, to lift Mr. Craig. Yeah, n- nice experiment, Elmo. Okay, can they put me down now? Now, some of your viewers are three and four years old, as you said, but some are as young as two years old. Are they ready for science and engineering lessons? You know, what we found is, yes, they are. You know, and we take everything we do out and test it. So we test it with the younger ones and then test it with the older end of our audience. And the key when you're dealing with the younger part of the audience is to make things very visual. So they may not get all of the verbiage at two, although we we do show that we've, we've been able to move the needle on teaching these big vocabulary words. But as a producer, you really want to make sure you're being very physical about what you're teaching, and that holds the younger ones and gets them to follow along. Now, from a production side, what changes did you have to make with your writers, perhaps? Are they consulting with scientists? Did you bring scientists on? Or were there any changes in how you write the scripts for Sesame Street? Well, we certainly always use, no matter what the curriculum is, we use expert advisors, academic advisors, and then advisors that specialize in early childhood education so we can learn how to adapt the curriculum to the age of our audience. But it's interesting, you know, one of the challenges when you're dealing with STEM, particularly, is that you need to be faithful to the science that you're trying to teach, and that will sometimes get in the way of comedy. So, for instance, we have a a very funny uh, and wonderfully rich science segment in Super Grover 2.0, and he solves all sorts of problems by experimenting and using his powers of observation and technology. And but when you're writing things, and I, I like to use this example that we learned that if you were going to have Super Grover run into a brick wall by accident, he wouldn't slap into the brick wall and slide down it. In fact, what's more scientifically accurate is that when you run at a brick wall, you actually bounce off that brick wall with the same amount of force that you've run into it, and then you might fall down. So it's funny to the producers and and writers how you have to alter the comedy. It's just as funny. You know, add sound effects to that fall, and it's just as funny either way. But we did find ourselves revising scripts to be scientifically accurate with our humor. (laughs) Now, that's one experiment that I assume you don't encourage children to do at home, run into a brick wall. No, we absolutely do not encourage them. That's part of what makes Super Grover so funny to kids is that, you know, he does the things they know he shouldn't. And they spend lots of time talking to the TV, trying to tell him how to do things the right way. 
Now, Super Grover flies through the air, and I remember him doing so many years ago because I used to watch Super Grover. He's been updated. As you said, he's now pursuing these scientific experiments, and one that I saw, he's helping some dancing penguins, and and they have a conundrum in front of them. And, And what is that conundrum? There is a giant block of ice that is blocking their dance floor. So these are tap dancing penguins, and they need to figure out how to move this giant block of ice out of their dance floor. And they they do a lot of experimenting. I wonder what would happen if I tickled the ice. Tickle, tickle, tickle. Coochie, coochie, coochie. I wonder what would happen if you gave it a push. Wait a minute. Wait. I wonder what would happen if I gave it a push. That's what I said. Behold, as I... Investigate with a push. They try a bunch of different things. It's a lot of trial and error. They'll try pushing and pulling, and then they notice that Super Grover runs off to get some help in a car, his Super Grover mobile, and the penguins are the ones that notice that that car has wheels. That's what helps it move, and perhaps if they tried that philosophy of using the wheels that might help move this very heavy block of ice that was too heavy for penguin power to move. How are you moving that giant piece of ice? Wheels! Now come on, penguin, let's dance! Hit it! And in addition to learning that wheels move things, we also use a lever as a device to pry the block of ice on top of the, the wheels. So Lots of fun, lots of silliness, but also some really, really wonderful science. And Super Grover defines himself by saying he observes, he questions, and he investigates. These are just basic scientific concepts. And in fact, there was another episode I saw where the word hypothesis was used. Yeah, you know, and that was one I think even we doubted whether kids would would grasp that concept. And, And again, you know, our testing has shown that kids not only embrace the word, but could really define its meaning after having watched Sesame Street content that uh, helps define it. And and finally, um, I know it's like choosing among your children probably, but do you have a favorite science episode or one that we haven't mentioned yet today? Oh, gosh. You know, there's such a, such a funny one, which is uh, Hubert the Human Cannonball, and human in this case being puppet human. He's trying to shoot himself into a vat of blue jello as part of his shtick, but his cannon breaks down, and the characters have to figure out what is it they can do to shoot Hubert in light of his cannon not working. And they try a bunch of things, including giant rubber bands, and um, it's just a wonderfully funny episode that's got wonderful experimenting for kids. And no calls from irate parents that said, let's say my toddler's demanding that I make a big bowl of blue jello for them to dive into? Yeah, we haven't had that call yet, but we do recommend sugar-free jello. Okay. Carolyn, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. <laughs> Experiment! <laughs> Carolyn Parente. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, Gazi. Carolyn Parente is executive producer of Sesame Street. Oh, look, a cupcake truck. Gotta go. Don't forget to look at my addition tape. Bye, Gazi. Sesame Street. 
Well, I love that idea, incorporating science into Sesame Street. You know, other popular television shows are doing the same. Like what? What do we have here? Body face down on the sidewalk. This can't be good. Glad you could make it, detectives. This looks like a straightforward hit. Why did you call us? We knew we needed SVU, the Science Victims Unit. We found this piece of plastic near the Vic. Good luck. A protractor. Bag this and dust it for prints at the lab. Yes, ma'am. That doesn't even make sense. A protractor, with its half arc and flat side, is used for measuring an angle or a circle. What's it doing on a sidewalk in Queens? Look at the position of the body, with the left arm at an obtuse angle to the rib cage, and the right, almost a hypotenuse. This wasn't an accident. Nope. The perp used physics and geometry to plan this hit. Look, he just had to have a ruler to measure up to that third-story fire escape platform so that the victim, when pushed, would bounce off this mailbox. Then, using Snell's law, he used the protractor to figure out the angle of the bounce off that liquor store glass window, which would obviously send the Vic onto the sidewalk, dead. The arms splayed thusly. Basic freshman physics. Wait until the boys down at the station get a load of this. What's wrong? It's this job, day in, day out, seeing the tools of science twisted and used like this. The cycle never ends. If you want to take a break... Okay, uh, brushing it off. We find that ruler, we find our perp. Get me a list of all known assailants and all unknown assailants with degrees in physics and math. Yes, sir, detective. Well, that's great. I'm encouraged by these attempts to incorporate more science into popular television programming. You know, even TV reruns have gotten into the act. Like what? So tonight I have two dates. <laughs> With two different guys. Better than one guy with a split personality, Chrissy. (laughs) Jack, personalities don't split in two. No, but atoms do, if you can fission that. What I fission is the girl downstairs in a bikini. Oh, Jack, here comes Mr. Roper. Quick, hide in the kitchen. Hey, quit shoving. Hi, Mr. Roper. Jack's not in the kitchen in case you're looking for him. Oh, so he's not in the kitchen, huh? Well, I'll just take a look. No, don't go in there. Oh, and Chrissy... Ow! Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Roper. That was an unfortunate transfer of momentum. In the ninth century, while Europe was firmly in the grip of the Dark Ages, Abbas ibn Farnas, a Muslim inventor, engineer, aviator, well, polymath, living in what is now southern Spain, attached feathers to a wooden glider, attached the glider to himself, took a leap, and soared over the Cordoban countryside. 600 years later, while Europe was firmly in the fever of the Renaissance, Leonardo da Vinci, an Italian polymath, gave his flying machine a whirl. Yet the kudos for the first attempt at flight often go to our Italian friend, in the Western world at least. For a hundred years before the flight of Abbas ibn Farnas to the 13th century, a huge swath of land of what today is North Africa, southern Spain, India, and Southeast Asia made up the Islamic Empire and a period known as the Golden Age of Islamic Science. Yes, science. It was a remarkable time and a reminder of what some history books have forgotten. The Tech Museum in San Jose, however, has remembered. Islamic Science Rediscovered is the exhibit that showcased philosophers and engineers who advance science and innovation. Today, religion and science are more often portrayed as foes in direct conflict. 
But during the golden age of Islamic science, leaders of the faith, the caliphs, encouraged scientific discovery, says curator Ranjana Mehra. These leaders gave great rewards to the scholars who translated Indian, Iranian, and Greek scientific works into Arabic to further scientific progress. The Islamic scholars and some of the caliphs, they really valued the ancient wisdom and paid their scholars in gold, weighing their manuscripts and translations from Greek, Persian, and Indian, and other sources. Now, now, let me get this straight. In other words, if you were one of the invited scholars uh, to the caliphate, uh-huh. and you wrote a paper that, you know, weighed a pound, you got, you got a pound of gold for that? I mean, that's a lot better than today's situation. Yeah, it would be like a genius grant or something, yeah. I I would get my pound of gold. (laughs) But I think that that's a great way to uh, evaluate the the worth of a paper. Now, uh, the Tech Museum has this exhibit here, and we're we're standing in it. uh, And surrounding me are all sorts of, I mean, there's a lot of art, but there's a lot of uh, sort of displays of the kinds of advances that were made in this period. And it's remarkable how broad the field of inquiry was. I mean, it wasn't just mathematics or or mechanics. It was extraordinarily broad. Yeah, so Islamic scientists were um, uh, what you would call polymaths. They believed in the unity of science. So they did not limit themselves to, say, just chemistry or biology. If their interests wandered off to biology, botany or something, they would study that and then go over to studying, uh, you know, how birds fly and all. So they were hakims, sages, polymaths, really. Well, Ranjana, to what extent can this be attributed to the fact that uh, these people actually bothered to read the work of the classical Greeks? Nobody in Europe was doing that. They, they not only read it, but they translated it into Arabic so other people could read it. I mean, were they sort of building on the Greeks? Were they, did, why were they so you know, interested in what the Greeks had done? The, the Romans weren't particularly interested. So, yeah, while the Islamic science was rising, Europe was sort of engulfed in the Dark Ages, and they did not value what their own scholars had done in the past. So there were certain things that impelled them to do those things. They knew that uh, certain uh, knowledge existed. They respected those. They, they valued those. Well, why was that? Was that because of religious impetus? Yes, exactly. The Prophet also uh, sort of told them to be curious and explore. But their religion tells them to face Mecca while praying. And they have to know the time of uh, when you have to pray. And you have to pray a certain number of times, five times. Also, they have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca once in their lifetime, the Hajj. You're making a journey, so you'll make some detours. You'll go, uh, you know, explore other other places that are nearby. And uh, these people also made good observations, noted it down, documented their journeys. Then fixing the direction of Mecca and being able to tell the correct time. So lots of improvements in astronomical devices uh, from Greek works, like the astrolabe, the quadrant, and all that. It, well, obviously, if, if you have to pray five times a day at certain hours, you need to face in a certain direction. Well, that just sounds like, you know, somebody ought to get a grant for doing some astronomical research. Why, why don't we take a look at some of these exhibits? Uh, what I'm looking at here is uh, something hanging from the ceiling, and it looks like something that Leonardo da Vinci might have cooked up. It's a guy uh, underneath a, well, <laughs> looks like an, sort of a, a, an ancient hang glider thing. Are those feathers there? 
yes, this is the guy that the, you see uh, him strapped to this wooden contraption, and his name is Abbas uh, bin Firnas. And uh, one fine day in 875 uh, Common Era, uh, he was almost 70 years old, and he had been studying the flight of birds for a long, long time. And uh, he just strapped himself with this contraption made of wood, silk, and feathers feathers on the contraption all over his body and he just jumped down from a building and he was able to successfully glide he crash landed but uh, survived and went on to uh, study other other subjects my goodness okay so so this as you say the, it's a remarkable resemblance to Leonardo da Vinci's work uh, centuries later. Do you think that uh, Leonardo was aware of this work? I think he may have been inspired by, <laughs> like we see the drawings here uh, from da Vinci and all, now 15th century Italy, and he researches the mechanics of flight, Leonardo da Vinci he designs, but this is very similar to what Fernas did. Abbas bin Fernas, not, you know, not a name that you hear often at dinner table conversation, and yet you could say this was the first serious attempt at aviation. I haven't met a single person who kn knew about him. The people who come in to uh, you know, look at this exhibition, they have not, never heard of anybody called Abbas bin Fernas, unless somebody actually studied the Islamic science. Hold on, we'll return to Seth's conversation with Ranjan Amara about the exhibit Islamic Science Rediscovered in a moment. This is Science's Alliances on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Ranjana, I think that uh, one aspect of Islamic science from the classical era that people might know about is uh, the use of the zero, mm -hmm. right? And, and uh, Arabic numerals are modern numerals because, uh, you know, anybody who's tried to do multiplication tables <laughs> with Roman numerals knows that this was a great step forward. Yes, easier to use. And once they reached India, they discovered that Indians were using zero in their, uh, the notation for zero and the decimal system. And once those were translated and uh, brought back, they were the ones who perfected these uh, fields of math, like algebra. Uh, algebra being an Arabic word, of course. Exactly. And they were the ones who brought uh, the decimal system to Europe. And also in trigonometry, they had uh, sign tables from India, but they were the ones to add uh, you know, secant and cosecant and tangent and cotangent. So. Again, this was used in astronomy and geometry, you see that uh, the religion forbids them from depicting human beings in art. Mm. So they used uh, geometrical uh, figures like triangles, rectangles, squares, circles, in uh, motifs in art. A anybody who's been to the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul would <laughs> see a lot of geometry on the ceiling there. And, and indeed, no, no pictures of people or of deities or anything like that. Uh, exactly. So. Uh, Art sprang from math and the dictates of religion. Uh, uh, in their architecture also, you can see that uh, 
we are looking at a picture of the Alhambra in Granada in Al-Andalus at that time they used to call it Al-Andalus the part of the Spain that was uh, under the Islamic Empire uh, you can see that it is based on a principle of uh, you know repeating rectangles and uh, each rectangle uh, you can see that the diagonals are based on the proportions of square root 2, square root 3 and square root 4 and square root 5 successive rectangles make up for a very pleasing and very harmonious facade this is, a, this is very reminiscent of the classical Greeks who use proportions in their architecture and so forth as well. You mentioned astronomy, of course, and, and they had astrolabes. They didn't have telescopes, but, you know, uh, a lot of, of course, the major stars, the brighter stars, I should say, have uh, Arabic names. Yes, uh, Betelgeuse. Uh, as we move towards the uh, exhibit on astronomy, we'll see astrolabe, the quadrant, the uh, celestial sphere, the armillary sphere. The foundations of these were in Greek books, uh, let me say. And uh, because they had to fix the direction of Mecca, Qibla, and uh, they had to be able to tell time, Salah. And they really, really wanted to study to fix the latitude, you know, if they were traveling on desert sands or in the seas, they had to be able to tell where they were and which way they had to face, so yeah. Ranjana Mehra, thanks so much for showing me around. You're welcome and thank you very much. Ranjana Mehra is curator of the exhibit Islamic Science Rediscovered at the Tech Museum in San Jose. Okay, we've paired up science with politics, with faith, with orange Muppets. What's next? Give the wheel a spin here. Anything goes. Okay, it lands on... Hmm, well, that's interesting, intriguing, unsettling, compelling. And it's next. Okay, our last pairing is familiar enough. You've experienced it with every viewing of The Terminator, The Matrix, Planet of the Apes, Source Code, and my favorite, Battle Los Angeles. Boy, that was loud. And that pairing is science and fiction. Science fiction. In book or in film, it's one of the most enjoyable genres out there. Because it is out there, or it can be, dealing with omniscient machines, time travel, genetically engineered superhumans. Those omniscient machines knew you were going to say that, Seth. Well, I'm glad for them. But on the face of it, why would science... And fiction have any symbiotic legitimacy at all? Because science is the world of facts and data, and fiction is... Well, just made-up stuff, imaginary worlds. But, and this is the irony, even though sci-fi is founded on imagination, it has real consequences. It allows us to test drive various scenarios of our own future. It's fantasy that permits us to chart a path to tomorrow's reality. Brooks Peck is a curator at the EMP Museum in Seattle, where science fiction is on display. I love science fiction, but I wonder, Brooks, whether the view of the future provided by 21st century sci-fi is any different than the view of 20th century sci-fi. I don't think they're that different. I think the storytelling is a little more sophisticated, but I think science fiction is still looking at the big questions like, what's our place in the universe? Are we alone in the universe? And where are we going and how are we going to live in the future? Well, as I recall, sci-fi was often about future technology, you know, stories motivated by amazing gadgets, mm-hmm. m- most of which were uh, electromechanical, at least early in the 20th century. I mean, is that still the case now? Now that everyone carries around truly futuristic gadgets, maybe we don't need to make stories about them anymore. I think you're right. I think there's 
somewhat less of an emphasis on the actual gizmos than in the early 20th century, especially when all this stuff was new and household electronics and even mechanical things were new and exciting. But I think there's still plenty of room to grow. I think there's a lot of speculation still about space travel in science fiction, which maybe that's not personal technology, but it's definitely technologically driven. And other frontiers like robotics, personal robotics. Traditionally, there's been a big difference in themes and even treatments between written sci-fi and the stuff you see on TV or in the movies. And although I'm a uh, fan of the latter, it was always said to me that the written sci-fi was always a bit more cerebral, and I was watching the dross. Why is this? Is it even true? Well, it might be true, although I don't think the movies are dross. I think the visual stuff is the whole point. You want to go for big, amazing visual things in film. So you want to see big alien invasions. You want to see other worlds, things like that. And in written science fiction, it's perhaps things like cultures and societies. How will we live? How should we live? Which, yeah, might not translate on the screen in a very exciting way, but I think is still one of the things that science fiction does best. Uh, science fiction film, one of the things they do so well is create sense of wonder, and which is like, you know, people can see these things and they can get excited about the possibilities of the future of future technologies. I think that's one of the draws for filmmakers to make science fiction. They kind of want to show off. They want to show off their designers and their abilities as filmmakers. I mean, look at a film like Avatar. It's a giant technological test bed for just how far can we push 3D digital animation. But now you're describing the fact that these films are an outlet for the technology. And I can imagine that sci-fi films are the best place to use the very sophisticated computer graphics that we have. But that doesn't mean that the public's interested in sci-fi. Maybe they're just interested in seeing amazing things. It's a good point. I think people enjoy film, of course, as a getaway, as entertainment, popcorn films, things like that, kind of take you away from the everyday world. And that might be another reason that people enjoy science fiction so much, because it takes us away. Can you tell me about some sci-fi films that you know are coming up? Do you pay attention to what films are coming down the pike there at your local multiplex? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of excitement right now about Ridley Scott's new film, Prometheus, which is said to be a prequel to Alien. Alien is one of the most enduring science fiction films, and I think with Ridley Scott at the helm, it has potential to be really neat. The studio is buttoned down. They're not letting anyone in there to see anything about it. So it's all very hush-hush. So we have Prometheus by Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott, I mean, he actually, I think he studied architecture. You can certainly see that in his films, which are visually always very surprising, even stunning. And Ridley Scott also made dozens and dozens of television commercials before he got into feature films. And I think that's where he learned to make a visual that's going to grab your attention quickly, like you have to do in TV advertising. What else is coming down the pike? I'm personally excited about the John Carter of Mars film that's coming up. It's bound to be more fantasy than science fiction, really, assuming it adheres to the novel, which had all kinds of four-armed giant green alien warriors on Mars, things like that, things we know couldn't possibly be today. Well, I have to say, I've looked at the trailer for uh, John Carter, and it did indeed have these big green <laughs> four-armed aliens. It looked to me like a costume drama set on an alien world thanks to computer graphics. It was kind of like a Roman epic, but the Romans are now multi-armed aliens. I mean, is that really sci-fi? I don't know. You could, you could describe the David Lynch Dune as a costume drama set on another world. So how would you describe real sci-fi? If I were a guy who, you know, spent his youth reading classic science fiction literature, you know, I might turn up my nose at this stuff and say, this is not the real deal. Mm. I think real sci-fi is any science fiction that makes you think 
and it can be making you think about science and technology, or it can be making you think about how we live and how we're going to live in the future. I think a film like Inception is a great example, where it opens up all these possibilities of the mind through a little, a little imaginative tweak of technology. And for me personally, anyway, that film just got me thinking and thinking about the possibilities inherent in that idea. Is it true that there have been more apocalyptic sci-fi films since the 9-11 attacks? I think we've seen definitely an upsurge in zombie films since 9-11, and that's a form of apocalyptic film. We saw Battle Los Angeles as well, and I, that was certainly apocalyptic for Los Angeles. But Yeah, I was a little disappointed that they stopped them at Santa Monica, but so it goes. <laughs> well, but they do now trash New York occasionally. I'm thinking of Steven Spielberg's remake of War of the Worlds, and I, mm-hmm. I sort of wonder whether that also harkens back to 9-11. Definitely. You know, War of the Worlds is a really interesting case because it seems like every time our society gets spooked by something or scared of something, someone goes out and remakes War of the Worlds. So you have the 1953 George Powell film, which has all these Cold War themes in it because the Cold War was really gearing up, and that's what people were afraid of at the time. After 9-11, I don't think it's a coincidence that they decided to make War of the Worlds again, a time when people were fearing change and fearing these forces in their world that they couldn't explain or understand. Speaking of such things, I've often thought that the apparent rise in the popularity of sci-fi films featuring aliens was the result of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. I mean, we needed movie bad guys, and we lost them all when the USSR (laughs) went away. So in step the aliens, and they don't ask for residuals either. I figured it was a good deal for Hollywood. (laughs) True, true. It's the whole digital actor phenomenon going on. I guess aliens are cheaper. And also, with aliens, you don't have to explain their motivation. They just want to get us. Like in Battle for Los Angeles, they just want outrageous things like water. It's not very logical, but because they're aliens, you can just say, hey, they're aliens, we can't explain them. (laughs) What about ideas? It's traditionally said that the true hero of a sci-fi flick is the idea, not one of the characters. You know, atomic weapons are bad, and we're going to pay the price with a lot of mutant critters. But in a lot of these films, they're not really about an idea anymore. It seems to me that the ideas are missing. It's about the action. It's about the visuals. Yes and no. I think throughout the history of science fiction film, the majority of the films have not had a super strong core idea. But there are definitely strong idea films out there. Inception is a strong idea film. I think even Avatar is based on a number of interesting ideas about telepresence and about trying to take a somewhat more realistic look at interstellar travel, things like that. They're out there. But yes, of course, there's plenty of fluffy action-oriented or just whiz-bang films, which they could be anything. They might be science fiction. They might be fantasy. It kind of doesn't matter. I have to say the packaging counts, at least sometimes it does. I love the original Alien film by Ridley Scott, but honestly, it was just a haunted house picture set in space. But it was done with so much style, so much verve, and was so scary. Well, you just had to love it. True, but I would argue that the biology and the life cycle of the alien was the sort of big idea in that film. And that's what people keep talking about. They talk about what happens when you get infested with this thing and it comes bursting out and then it eats people and does it over and over. It was pointed out to me by a biologist that any species that requires some other species from another world to land on its planet and swallow it isn't going to have a great deal of reproductive success. That's what, the, what they it's told true, me. but maybe Prometheus will answer that question, you know, help uh, queer that up for us. Yeah, how this uh, kind of critter ever evolved in the first place. Well, finally, Brooks, sci-fi has always been considered a window into our fears, our hopes for the future. 
sometimes even a predictive device telling us what life might be like in the future. Is that still true? I think it's completely true. Science fiction is sort of a test bed for how we might want to live and the things we might want to do. And so science fiction stories can show us what might go wrong with the ideas that we're currently playing with. Uh, You look at all these films and stories about killer robots expressing these fears about, well, what if our technology gets out of control? But also science fiction can show that it's really worth the high cost sometimes of scientific research to achieve amazing things, to achieve a world where we all have health and we can travel to amazing worlds and So science fiction is always doing that job, I think. Brooks Peck, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Thank you. The EMP Museum in Seattle is where Brooks Peck calls home away from home as curator. Well, Seth, I remain a science fiction fan, and that's it for our show. Hey, you know, we really should listen to Ghazi's audition tape. I mean, at least to be polite. You're right. We should. Of course. I'll play it. Hi, I'm Ghazi, and this is Big Picture Science audition tape. Coming up, all sorts of science stories. I like science. There are lots of questions that science can answer about the moon and trees and bananas. They have appeal. And ants and planets, kangaroos, flowers. That's and it volcanoes. for our show. Thanks to the great partnerships among our production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also, support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to Sciences Alliances and Gazi. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're there, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio, well, check out the listings on our website of radio stations that carry Big Picture Science. Grasshoppers, monsters, maybe not monsters, blue-green algae, cupcakes, space, dark energy, pumpkins. Should we give them a job? Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.